going to start. All right. Uh, I believe Scott will be back next week. Is that right, Tim? That is correct. All right. So I will stand in the gap for a little bit, but next week uh, be prepared to be asked questions like, what do you hear here and those kind of things. <laughs> Although we are going to uh, dwell quite a bit in scripture this morning. Um, were you, how many of you were in first service? Okay, about half. Uh, David Rubio is preaching this morning and um, is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, if, I find that it's really moving to just sit in large chunks of the biblical text, as is the sermon this morning. Uh, in class, we're going to just look at two chapters primarily, but um, that, that's something that I don't know that we do a lot of or enough of. We, we tend to, you know, kind of skip a stone through large passages of scripture and kind of catch little, little pieces of it, and there's value to that for sure, but I think there's something inherently good about just sitting and, and reading a long passage of the text as it was meant to be read and heard. So, uh, so we'll do that uh, in Joshua as well. So between the sermon that you, that you will hear or have heard and class, you're going to have a lot of scripture this morning, which is a, which is a good thing. So um, I asked uh, Tim and Justin and, and Scott kind of where we were in the study, and uh, what I heard was choose anything from Joshua. So that's what, that's what we're doing. Um, the entire book of Joshua, of course, is a great book, great text. But we're just going to look at a couple of chapters early on, uh, kind of focus in there at least. So you can be turning there. Um, a little bit of background about Joshua. By the way, I, I didn't write this. I, I, don't, I walked in and I said, what, is that, what does that mean? <laughs> so I'll wash my hands. Some, somebody, somebody was in here earlier. Won't name any names. Um, the, Tim, Tim knows what it means. Yeah, I know Tim knows what it means. Our glass tins, I know that. <laughs> uh, apparently, this was a sporting event score yesterday. Um, I put that mildly sporting event. Man, we're digging in. Um, hey, yeah, roll it real quick. Will that right? Seventy-five and thirty-two. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so we're going back, way back in history. Yeah, they're we're not making the last one. Last one last last it's just it's it's perspective. That's right. So we could say 31 and then plus 1 is pretty much. Uh, hey, Shepard, you tapped my back. Where's the Auburn jacket? What's this little coming <laughs> More money to go in there right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll watch it. All right. <laughs> so in uh, Joshua, uh, just to give you a little bit of background for just the very name of Joshua, the, the Hebrew name is Yehoshua. So, um, it, which is very much. Uh, connected to the name of Jesus. So anytime you read Joshua, you need to be thinking, what are the parallels to Jesus? And really, anytime we read about the story of Jesus, we can always go back and look at the parallels to Joshua. So this is Joshua. Of course, the name of Jesus is Yeshua. And so you can see, um, it, it's just this little bit uh, in the middle of Joshua that's different. And so the name of Jesus, of course, means Savior or one who saves. Joshua uh, also means 
to save, but it's in the causative form. So when you write a verb in this form, it means to cause to be saved. So Joshua is the one who is causing people to be saved, whereas Jesus is the Savior. But very much the names are, are similar. Um, in fact, sometimes, uh, sometimes a Yehoshua could be called Yeshua for short. So, so there's very much a, a parallel uh, between, between those two names and two characters in the, in the Bible. Um, so when we think about the Savior, Jesus, or the, or the Savior, Joshua, who's going to save his people and, and lead them into the Promised Land, um, I thought we might just start by thinking about the greatest save. Um, and that can be in a lot of different contexts. You, may, you might think of uh, this guy, uh, Mariano uh, Rivera, who, of course, played for the evil empire, the Yankees. But as a, as a pitcher, uh, you know, there's probably no better saver, no better closer than Rivera. Um, a few of his stats, he has a lifetime ERA of 2.25, uh, record uh, 10 all-star games. He played in 13 straight seasons with at least 25 saves, which is incredible. Uh, five-time World Series champion, and he closed out four of those championships. Uh, his postseason success uh, includes uh, an ERA of .74, 39 saves, and 70 games finished. Uh, he was the 99 World Series MVP uh, of, the, of, the, of the World Series, led the Yankees to a record-tying 14 consecutive playoff appearances between 95 and 07. Incredible relief pitcher with... Many, many saves. So uh, this is not, he is not the starting pitcher, though, right? He's not the guy who starts the game when it's 0-0. He's the guy that comes in at the end of the game and does the dirty work and either tries to, you know, shut down the other team. Well, in either case, try, tries to shut down the, the other team to maintain a lead or to shut down the other team to try to get a, let his team have a few runs here at the end of the game to, to recover. Um, and so there's some, there is some measure of glory in coming in late and saving the day and being that saving pitcher. But, um, but he's not the starter. That, that's a little, little different. Uh, and we, so we see that in this Joshua and Moses uh, you know, lineup, I guess. Moses is on the mound at the beginning of the day and comes to, uh, to initiate this saving process and, and lead the people out of slavery and into the promised land, but of course we know the story that Moses is not, is not going to be able to enter the promised land because of some of the things that happen along the journey. And so Joshua uh, is appointed and comes in, and he, he, he doesn't really get as much um, glory or attention, I don't think, in, in uh, Christianity or even Jewish tradition of, of study and just kind of holding, holding up as an example. Most of us think about Moses as this great hero of, of old, and Joshua always kind of plays second fiddle. But the reality is that uh, Joshua has a huge role to play, and, um, and uh, it, it's fair to say Joshua is just as important to the story as, as Moses is. So uh, we're going we're gonna to spend most of our time in chapters 3 and 4. But before we do that, I thought I would, I would share this little video, which is pretty good, I think, to give us uh, kind of a recap 
of the entire book. Um, so let me see where my volume is here. All right, this, this may be loud. All right, so this is a, a, about a five or six minute video just to kind of give us an overview of Joshua to give us context, and then we'll zero in on chapters three and four. The book of Joshua. Let's back up and remember the story so far. So God chose Abraham, and then his family became the people of Israel, who are then enslaved down in Egypt. And so through Moses, God rescued Israel out of Egypt. He made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, and he brought them through the wilderness. So Israel then camped outside the promised land, and Moses called them to obey God's commands so that they could show all the other nations what God is like. The book of Joshua picks up right after Moses has died, and Israel's ready to enter the land. So the story of Joshua is designed with four main movements. Joshua first leads Israel into the promised land, and then once they're there, they meet all this hostility from the Canaanites, and so they engage them in battle. Then after their victories, Joshua divides up the promised land as the inheritance for the twelve tribes, and then the book concludes with these final speeches that Joshua gives to the people. So let's dive in and we'll see how all of it flows together. The first section begins with Moses' death, and Joshua is appointed as Israel's new leader. And the author intentionally presents Joshua as a new Moses. So like Moses, Joshua calls the people to obey the Torah, which means the covenant commands that they were given at Mount Sinai. And then Joshua sends spies into the land, just as Moses did back in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, except it goes way better this time. In fact, even some Canaanites turn and follow the God of Israel. Joshua then leads all Israel across the Jordan River and into the land. Just like the sea parted for Moses in the Exodus, so here the river Jordan parts and the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant across, leading all Israel with them. Now, in chapter 5, the story transitions. So the people look back to their roots as God's covenant people, and so the new generation is circumcised, and they celebrate their first Passover in the land. But then they turn and prepare to go forward. And Joshua has this crazy encounter with a mysterious warrior, who, it turns out, is the angelic commander of God's army. And Joshua asks, are you for us, or are you for our enemies? And the warrior responds, neither which shows that the real question here is whether Joshua is on God's side. It makes clear that this whole story is not about Israel versus the Canaanites. Rather, this is God's battle, and Israel is going to play the role of spectators or sometimes supporters in God's plan, which leads to the next section. We find stories about all these conflicts that Israel had with different Canaanite groups, and the first part retells the story of two battles in detail, and that's followed by a series of short stories that condense years of battles into a few brief summaries. So the first two battles are against Jericho and then Ai. And they offer these contrasting portraits of God's faithfulness versus Israel's failure. At Jericho, Israel is to take a completely passive approach. So they let God's presence in the ark lead them around the city to music for six days. And just like Rahab turned to the God of Israel, maybe the people of Jericho would do the same, but they don't. And so on the seventh day, the priests blow the trumpets and the walls come falling down, leading Israel to victory. The point of the story is that God is the one who will deliver his people. Israel simply needs to trust and wait. 
Now the next story of the battle at Ai makes the opposite point. So there's this Israelite named Achan, and he steals from Jericho some of the devoted goods that were to belong to God alone, and then he lies about it. It's a pretty lame move after all that God has done for Israel. And so Israel goes into battle with the city of Ai, and they're totally defeated. And it's only after humble repentance and severely dealing with Achan's sin that Israel gains victory. And so together, these two stories, they're placed right up front to make an important point. If Israel is going to inherit the land, they have to be obedient and trust in God's commands. They don't get special treatment. Now the second part of this section begins with the Gibeonites, a Canaanite people group, and they do just what Rahab did as they turned to follow the God of Israel and they made peace with Israel. This is in contrast to all of these other Canaanite kings who start to form alliances and coalitions and they want to destroy Israel. So Israel engages them in battle and they win by a landslide. And so this whole section concludes with this summary list of all of these victories won by Moses and then by Joshua. Now, Let's stop for a second, because odds are that these stories and the violence in them, they're going to bother you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're bound to wonder, like, didn't Jesus say to love your enemies? Why is God declaring war here? So, first, why the Canaanites? The main reasons are actually given earlier in the biblical story. It's that the culture of the Canaanites had become extremely morally corrupt, especially when it comes to sex. Go check out Leviticus chapter 18. And they also widely practiced child sacrifice. Go see Deuteronomy chapter 12. And so God didn't want these practices to influence Israel. The Canaanites had to go. Which raises the second question. Did God actually command the destruction of all the Canaanites, like a genocide? So at first glance, you know, you look at the phrases used in these stories. They totally destroyed them. They left no survivor or anything to breathe. But when you look a second time, more closely, you'll see that these phrases are clearly hyperbole and not literal. So go back to the original command about the Canaanites in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Israel is first told to drive out the Canaanites, but then to totally destroy them. And then that's followed by commands to not intermarry with them or enter into business deals with them. So you can't marry someone that you've destroyed. I think you get the point. The same idea applies to the stories in Joshua. Look closely. So for example, we're told in Joshua chapter 10 that Israel left no survivors in the cities of Hebron or Debir. But then later, in chapter 15, we see these towns and they're still populated by Canaanites. And so what we're seeing is that Joshua fits in with other ancient battle accounts by using non-literal hyperbolic language as part of the narrative style. And so the word genocide doesn't actually fit what we see here, especially in light of the stories about the Canaanites who did turn to the God of Israel, like Rahab or the Gibeonites. God was open to those who would turn to him. The last thing to think about is that these stories mark a unique moment in Israel's history. These battles were limited to the handful of people groups living in the land of Canaan. With all other nations, Israel was commanded by God to pursue peace. Go read Deuteronomy chapter 20. And so the purpose of these battle stories was never to tell you, the reader, to go commit violence in God's name. Rather, they show God bringing his justice on human evil at a unique moment in history and how he delivered Israel from being annihilated by the Canaanites. Now, let's go back to the book's design. 
after years of battles, we see an aging Joshua, and he starts dividing up the land for the 12 tribes of Israel. And most of this section is like lists of boundary lines. And let's be honest, it's kind of boring. It's like reading a map that has no pictures. But for the Israelites, these lists were super important. This was the fulfillment of God's ancient promises to Abraham that his descendants would inherit the promised land. And so now it was all coming to pass right down to the detail, which leads to the final section. Joshua gives two speeches to the people that are very similar to the final speeches of Moses in Deuteronomy. Joshua reminds them of God's generosity, how he brought them into the land and rescued them from the Canaanites. And so he calls them to turn away from the Canaanite gods and be faithful to the covenant they made. If they do, it will lead to life and blessing in the land. But if they're unfaithful, Israel will call down on itself the same divine judgment that the Canaanites experienced. They'll be kicked off the land into exile. And so Joshua leaves Israel with a choice. What is Israel going to do? That's the big question that looms as the story ends, and that's the book of Joshua. All right, so a good, uh, quick little overview of the whole book. By the way, this video comes from a series called The Bible Project. They have a similar video on every book in the Bible, and then some different characters, some different the theological topics, and they're all really, really good. Sound theology and um, well-made. Eric, they yeah. uh, have this read scripture, uh, read through the Bible, yeah. that has these videos placed in as you uh, read through the Bible. I haven't um, seen that. I'm about, uh, I'm in 2 Samuel right now doing that. It's, it is wonderful. Yeah. Because you really understand what you're reading. Right. So it's a it's a Bible, but it refers you to the video. It's an app. Oh, an app. Yeah, it's an app. Right. The app is called the Bible. Project. It's called Read Scripture. Read Scripture. Okay. Well, I didn't know that. I, I had seen these. Well, it came up when you started it. it yeah, that's right. That's right. I just never put it. All of the, all of all there there probably there's some books there's more than one video. Mm -hmm. it, it does all of this context setting all the way through it and talks about some sticky points right. like God telling them to play everybody. Right. Because, you know, that, that is our purpose. Yeah. We know that Vanderbilt destroyed Genesis. <laughs> That's right. So That's exactly right. We do the same thing today with our language. But it's really good. Yeah, it, it is really good. I highly recommend it. So any kind of Bible study you're doing, if you if you want to work, work those in, I, I think that's helpful. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know about the Read Scripture app. Um, so just from that video, any, any things that kind of jumped out at you or you thought, oh, that's an interesting point or I hadn't thought about it that way or uh, anything that made an impression? Well, that whole uh, hyperbole discussion, I've never even heard that. <clears throat> yeah, and there is, um, you know, to be fair, even among scholars, there is some debate about is this literal or hyperbole. Um, I, I I agree with this perspective. I, I think it is hyperbolic because even subsequent in scripture you get account, as they pointed out, you know, just a few chapters later it talks about the same towns and there are people there. Um, and there were certainly some people who uh, were open to hearing about the God of the Israelites and, and put their faith in him. So 
it seems like Canaanites weren't completely wiped out, even though that's the language. And I think it goes to like what Carrie's saying is, yeah, we see how, you know, Auburn annihilated Alabama yesterday. Well, you know, nobody died, and Alabama did score some points, but but Auburn won. Um, so I, I think that's just a, a trick of the language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, the, the one thing that I've always wondered about is why the whole of Israel had to suffer just because one man decided to take some things that weren't supposed to be worth saying. Why, why was that important that everybody feel that pain? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's always been a mystery to me. Why, why was that? It increases accountability. That is, you, and this is not a good comparison at all. Yeah. If you've ever participated in a team sport, and oh, yeah. one of your compatriots screws up, and you all pay the price. Yeah. Well, I think the coach is trying to create some incentive for people to self-police. And, you know, so I don't know. I, yeah, no, I, my mind was running to the exact same really? thing. I was thinking about I'm coaching a couple of basketball teams, and we we have a thing where you know if you miss free throws in the game. In practice, we're all running. We're all shooting. Yeah, but but, I mean, you know, to to your point about it not being a good analogy, I mean, this is like real life and death. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, so that that was the part that just thought "Mm, that's a little far. Well, you know, the whole the whole Old Testament is really brutal and really bloody. It is. Mm -hmm. It's just all over the place. We haven't seen anything yet. Yeah. I guess the, the story that I wonder about is um, when Saul was told to quote totally destroy, mm-hmm. and he did with a few exceptions, mm-hmm. a king and some of the best of the herds and, mm-hmm. and all that, and, and he got blasted for that. In that context, it seems like totally destroying means <coughs> totally destroy. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the language is different. Yeah, I yeah, I would have to go and look at that specific language. There, I know that there are several other instances, like like Deuteronomy tells these stories of, of the battles, and and all of them are total annihilation, total destruction, leave no survivor kind of language. But then, as you read on through the Old Testament, even into in, into Joshua, when when they circle back to these towns, there there are people there. So it seems like it seems like it's hyperbolic in nature. Um, but like I said, there there is some. De- Debate. Uh, it's very possible that sometimes it wasn't hyperbolic. You know, some towns may have been utterly Saul would have loved to have and totally destroyed. Time, I'm sure. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. That's right. Um, so uh, you know, there there could have been some instances where a certain battle was total annihilation and destruction. Uh, I think for the most part there were some hyperbole happening there. One of one of the things that I I read about Joshua as compared to what's going to happen with
nation tends to follow, you know, when they have some of the bad kings, then the nation is seen as unfaithful. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tend to follow the leadership. I think uh, one thing that comes out in this, which goes to your point a little bit, why did they all have to suffer because of Achan? Um, I think it goes to the heart of, especially in the Old Testament, we see that God is interested in saving communities of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's only since about the mid-20th century that this whole notion of a personal Savior, Jesus is my personal Savior, ever appeared in, in Christendom. That was never a notion of anybody's until recently. And there's truth in it. I'm not saying that Jesus is not our, I mean, Jesus saves my soul personally, but uh, it seems that God is in the business of saving communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you look at a large, the, you know, the whole swath of scripture, uh, God is always after um, the Israelites, or, you know, he talks about his, his kingdom. Um, it seems like there, there's value in community uh, to God. So, so I don't know if that, you know, could be part of the answer of, you know, when, when somebody in the camp messes up, the whole community has to bear some of the responsibility. But uh, anything else from that overview of the book? I think it's interesting also that Scott brought it up the Passover and about the laws of Jericho coming down. But mm-hmm. it's again in the Old Testament how deliberate and specific God is of the boundaries of what to do and what not to do, exactly the land, where they can set the details. Yeah. The floods are up all over the land. Yeah. And he's a planner. <laughs> yeah. What happens when you don't listen to that? Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, well, let's read, uh, start in chapter 3. Uh, we're going to read chapters 3 and 4. Um, and I'd really like to uh, think about this idea of memory. Memory becomes really important in these chapters, the memory of what God is doing. By the way, I also liked how they phrased in that video, this story is not about Israel versus Canaan. This is God's story, God's battle. Uh, and Israel is involved as a character in the story. But we do tend to read it as Israel versus Canaan, and that, that's not what, what Scripture is trying to do here. Um, so let me read um, the whole of chapter 3. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. Do not go near it. That's a, so ten football fields. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the, and the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, When you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you, and that he will certainly Drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men 
from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood, flood stage during all harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zerathun. While the water flowing down to the sea of, of the Arabah, the salt sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. So reminiscent of leaving Egypt and crossing the Red Sea, for sure, there's definitely um, memory that is evoked there. Um, there's also... Uh, I, I think there's also allusion to, to baptism in both the Red Sea crossing and the, the Jordan crossing. Even though they're not touching the water, uh, essentially you have the community of God's people passing through the waters. Um, and so it seems like the community is being marked by God. Uh, and then also, uh, I, I think it's interesting, it, it doesn't talk about this here, but you know they're, they're crossing the Jordan opposite from Jericho. Jericho is not far from the Jordan River. So um, you might not be able to be within the city walls and see the river, uh, but certainly an entire nation camping on the other side of a river would have had Jericho's attention by this time. Mm -hmm. Certainly there would have been spies out, you know, outside the city walls, in the fields, looking across the river, maybe even had crossed, crossed the Jordan to the other side to be kind of uh, amongst the camp to see what was going on. And so I can't imagine you know, when word gets back to Jericho, how this river crossing went down, um, it, it, you know, and then they start marching around the city every day. And I just can't imagine the intimidation factor that must have been happening when they, they hear the story of the river stop for them to cross. And now they're outside, you know, marching around the city. What are we going to do? So I, I think there must have been a lot of fear uh, building up uh, amongst the Canaanites there in Jericho. Uh, any other any other things stand out to you there? Those are some things that I notice. Extremely minor points, but <laughs> this this opening must have been extremely wide. Mm -hmm. In other words, if they were not to come near the ark, mm -hmm. but yet the priest stopped in the middle of the river while they passed by. Just trying to visualize how that could have worked. Yeah. It, it seems like they must have been at least a thousand yards downstream from where the priests were. Something like that. Uh, yeah. Now, certainly, you know, we're not talking about a river that's, you know, as wide as this room. You know, think Mississippi River or some major river that you have to, with a huge bridge. This is the kind of river we're talking about. Jordan's pretty healthy, especially in flood stage. Um, but yeah, I, that was one thing that I noticed that I hadn't really picked up on before was that it names a town where it stopped. You know, it stops way up at the town of, of Adam, apparently, uh, and then it and it talks about all the way down to the sea. You know, it's it's cut off. So it seems like it's a pretty large section of the river that is now dry for this entire nation of God's people to cross over. But yeah, I think that's been 
in my mind, maybe since I was a kid, you know, with the flannel board stories, just the, the water comes right here and stops and everybody walks across single file and then the water goes. That's kind of what you picture, but I, I don't think that was how it worked. You know, also, uh, Eric, this is a whole new generation of people that only heard the stories about Egypt, of the wonders. Yeah. And so he says in verse uh, 5 that for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. You know, these are these are people that didn't get to see the plagues. That's right. And so God is kind of renewing his uh, shock and awe kind of <laughs> activities so that they will understand that he is God. And so that that is kind of what probably Jericho made a little bit of sense when they saw that the waters were backed up. And so it's just kind of one of those things where he's, he's having to re, yeah. reprogram these people to say, okay, I am who I am. That's right. And stuff like that. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. This is the Red Sea event for this generation. Right. And they've, they've told the story, but we know what happens to stories as they're passed from generation to generation. Mm -hmm. People start sitting in rooms and, and say things like, well, that was probably hyperbole. You know? <laughs> uh, but, uh, I, I think, but I think that point is true. You, right. you, lose, you lose the gravitas of the, of the situation as it's passed from generation to generation. Uh, I think one of my favorite, I just want to share this, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is Isaiah 43, first half or so of this chapter. I'm just going to read verse 2 and 3. <clears throat> It says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Um, and then it goes on. But uh, when I hear this passage from Isaiah, I think of the story of Joshua. That as I pass through whatever water I may have to pass through, uh, God is there. All right, let's, uh, we've only got a couple minutes, but I want to finish chapter 4, so let's, let's press on. Uh, when the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priest stood, and to carry them over with you, and, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of, of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. We can stop there at the text kind of circles back and, and reframes that once more. Um, so let, let's talk for just a second about the importance of remembering. Uh, you know, that, that's one of the functions of the Lord's Supper that we share each week is, is to remember. Um, but when, when people forget, when a people, a community forgets things, bad things tend to happen. Uh, and so that's why uh, we have memorials uh, like this. This is the, the Korean War Memorial, which um, for those of you that have been to the mall area in D.C., of course there are several memorials there. This one is the most impressive to me, I think, um, because these guys, these statues, this platoon walking through the garden here, 
are just they're just a little bit larger than life. I don't know exactly. Does anybody know how tall Carrie? Do you know how tall these guys are? They're yeah. probably six, eight, seven foot, something like that. Uh, maybe seven two ish. So from a distance, you kind of think that they're just life size, and then you get up closer and you realize they're just a little bit larger than life. And the way we approached, we kind of walked along that back sidewalk first before we got up to the front. And so I couldn't really identify any kind of an organization. It just seemed like these random statues in the garden. And then when you get to the front, you realize it comes to an apex and there's a point man walking out front and they, they fan back and they're you know, patrolling the, the grounds. And uh, of course they have faces and they're looking around and something about it was just really striking to me. We were also there when we, when Dixon and I were there, we were there in the evening, it was kind of dusk. And so uh, at night it's, it's lit up and it's, it's haunting, um, but it instills in you the memory uh, of the war. Of course, I wasn't uh, around or at least paying attention during the Korean War. Um, so this is important for my generation and for my kids uh, to be aware of this, to know that this is what it, this is what it looks like. It's not, and wars don't happen on, on a map. In one sense, the conflict is still with us. That's right, yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. It's still, still playing out uh, in, in some political way. So uh, anyway, so the... Uh, the importance of memorials, I think, uh, is important um, for, for the reason that's laid out in Scripture. When your kids ask, what are these stones for, you can tell the story. So when you're sitting in church and you pass this shiny round tray that has bread on it, which is such a weird thing to do for people who have gathered together, why, you know, that's so weird. Well, part of the reason we do that is so that when my kids say, Dad, what are you, what are you doing here? What is this? I have an opportunity to tell. And it's not just a, a trigger of, okay, I, now I'm going to tell the story. But what we're doing, the, the, the bread itself has import to the story. It has a connection to the story. So, um, uh, so, so that's, a, that's important, I think. Um, any other uh, important memorials for, for you? Oklahoma City. Okay, yeah. With that. All the, the children's chairs just wore me out when you see them all, even not even the letters not used during the day. It's just very moving knowing there are those kids too that were yeah. killed through that. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, I, I think uh, any cemetery, uh, particularly if you know the people that were buried there, memorial. Come out to a lot of light, and then there is a uh, 
then the, the profiles all the winners of the uh, Nobel Peace Prize hmm. as you exit the uh, museum. Wow. So it's they what whoever the architect <coughs> did yeah. with that was just yeah. amazing in terms of taking you through the, the history of mankind. Right. The, in his mind, the, the pit was the was the third yeah. one. Wow, that's impressive. Um, well, I think we all have memories that, that shape us. <clears throat> I think of memories of me as a kid on my grandparents' farm that had huge impact for who I am and how I think about the world and the earth today. Um, but uh, we're out of time. I, I want to share this last, last quick story. Uh, speaking of memorial stones out of a river, <clears throat> when uh, Isaac, my oldest, uh, turned... Uh, uh, he was probably 13. Um, uh, he was probably younger than that. He was 12, 11 or 12. Uh, I took him to the Buffalo River. Uh, we were going to canoe part of the Buffalo River, so we drove to North Arkansas. And uh, when our kids finish fifth grade, we take them on a trip. I took both the boys. Dixie took Jaylee. And that is a not only a special commemorative trip, it's also a time where we talk about life and how you treat the opposite gender and where babies come from and all that all that kind of conversation so it's it's a big deal uh i took isaac to buffalo river to have that conversation and uh it was one of the most beautiful days that god has ever given us i mean the weather was perfect it was just warm enough that after a few uh you know 30 minutes on the on the canoe Boy, you have to beach it and get in the river and swim a little bit. And it would get kind of cool, and you get back out, and then the sun felt good, and we had good food with us. And, I mean, it was just one of those days that it's just, you know, something that you carry with you forever. <clears throat> I grabbed a, a rock out of the river and took it back, and I, I remember telling Isaac, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this as a, as a souvenir. Uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to remind me of this day. And to this day, of course, you know, it's only been, I don't know, about six years. But that, that rock sits on the nightstand of, beside my bed. And very often, I look at it and just kind of smile to myself and remember the connection I have with my son, the, the great memories that we shared on that day. And hopefully, I think he'll re remember that forever, too. I certainly will. <clears throat> but that's the power of, <clears throat> of, of memory. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and so... As you go this week, uh, remember who you belong to. Remember this story that you're called up in. Uh, remember that uh, just like this story is not between Israel and Canaan, that this is God's story and Israel played a role in it. Uh, we're still in God's story, but we still have a role to play in it too. So look for your role. Uh, thank you for the conversation. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, sir.